Welcome everybody to another episode of the Rule Not the Exception podcast. We are back once back once again with a renegade master. Do you remember that one? <laughs> He's had too much sleep. Do you remember that song? I do remember that song. Do you know that's that a classic? I do from fitness stuff. Oh, such a big tune. Anyway, <laughs> um, we have got a an amazing guest um, in the building. Someone uh, I've got to know over the last sort of twelve months. Amrita, too. You worked with this guest of ours. Um, and once we met her, got to know her a little bit more, we were like, you know, we want to get on the podcast. We think she'd be amazing. She's got some great stories. So let's crack on. We have the wonderful Moyo Akande. Hello. Hello. It's been quite hard to get you on this podcast. I mean, apart from the global pan- pandemic, um, you were also incredibly busy. I know. Uh, which is great. Busy year, surprisingly. Yeah, you'd think that it's 2020 and we're in the middle of a pandemic where our industry's sort of come to a standstill, that there would be no work going. But actually, I've been quite fortunate that there's been bits here and there to keep me busy. Yeah, so we met on um, a lovely and a really interesting theatre show at the South Theatre called uh, Special Relationship. And um, we were in the midst of that when a COVID hit. I know. Um it was quite sad, wasn't it? We had to shut a week early. Yeah, at least we got a run. Lockdown. At least we got a run compared to other friends of mine who had just landed West End debut shows, um, expecting to save money for a house and their futures. And then they were literally told, nope, can't go ahead. Everything shut down. And yeah, it's been. I think it's been pretty hard on a lot of people. Um, but I'm sure we will recover. I think within the industry, I think this is when creative people excel. They excel when they're faced with obstacles and adversity and we always find a way through. I think that's when we really shine. So I think people are taking the steps to bring, you know, the industry back to life again. I mean, it's happening slowly but surely. So at least there's a positive move in that direction. What have you been doing with your time over the summer and the spring? Have you Are you someone who's been keeping busy or have you used it as an opportunity to sort of just recharge the batteries? I've Maybe just, a bit of both. A bit of both. I've, I've tried to just read more and just relax and sort of meditate and not get too bogged down about when's the next job coming um it's been positive in the sense i've been able to reconnect with family i can actually went up to scotland um after the lockdown happened we thought london was going into a national lockdown so we escaped just before it was all official and i stayed with family for four months it was incredible just being back up there and whereabouts the countryside i'm from glasgow uh, so I lived just out the city, so went back to see my mum and my brother, and it was just amazing spending time with them. And actually throughout the lockdown, had to film a piece in isolation for the National Theatre of Scotland, which was great because I had a lot of time on my hands. And um, it was a bit of a challenge, but what the National Theatre of Scotland did was that they put together a hardship campaign to sort of keep their theatre alive and to keep people's kind of hopes and dreams alive and to kind of encourage audiences who couldn't see theatre anymore. So the deal was that they hired actors, directors and writers to all work together in isolation. And it was amazing because all our kind of meetings were done via Zoom. And it's fantastic to know I never met a single person that I shot my piece with. So Steph Smith wrote it and Catherine Nesbitt directed it. We've still not met up until today. And we managed to create theatre being in complete isolation yeah which makes me go that's incredible like theater will never die did you sort of still feel a sense of connection with 
with your audience? Yeah, of course. I mean, it was streamed online. Mm. So a lot of people could connect that way. No one had to pay for it. It was free. The only thing we asked was if anyone wanted to donate to keep, you know, Scottish theatre alive, then they could do that. And the response has just been fantastic. I watched it. It was great. You were working with amazing actors. Who were some of the people that were in it? Well, I was actually part of the launch night. So I was with a list of people like Brian Cox. I mean, he's fantastic. I had just been binging him. I know. On Succession. succession. We were obsessed. Throughout the lockdown. I think a lot of people have been binging Netflix and Amazon and HBO throughout the lockdown. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. I've worked with Brian actually before, uh, years ago. So it was nice to be kind of included in that selection that lineup so I think a lot of people engaged and it's just taken off since then. So you went back to Glasgow um, and how was that after spending quite a lot of time in London because I remember speaking to you and you were like oh, I'm thinking of moving back. Yeah it was a bit of a culture shock actually. Um, I mean you get more bang for your buck up there <laughs> as well it's a lot cheaper there's more space the properties are amazing and the people just don't take themselves too seriously. There's a saying in Glasgow that people make Glasgow and I truly believe that. Um, so it was nice, but ah, my heart is still in London. You know, I came, I moved down here when I was 17 to study. And I've always felt like I fit in down here. Of course, Glasgow's home and always will be. But it wasn't until I actually left drama school for my first holiday at Christmas time. It was a Christmas break. Came up and felt like... It was bizarre, like I stuck out slightly. I walked down Sucky Hall Street and Buchanan Street. And, you know, people kind of look and stare. And it's not all bad, of course. I'm sure it's good as well. But I just didn't see many people that looked like me. It's changed a lot now. But back then, it wasn't as multicultural as it is today. So part of me connects with London in the sense that it's such a melting pot and there are so many different mixes of people. They're seeing now London is becoming more diverse to the fact that the white people <laughs> that live there are becoming the minority, which is extraordinary. I don't think there's any other city within the UK that that's happening to. Kind of country in itself, yeah. almost, isn't it? Could you give us a bit of background about um, about your background and how you and your family ended up in Glasgow and how that experience was growing up. Yeah, I mean, my mother and uh, father met in Nigeria. They were childhood sweethearts and they moved over to London for more opportunities. My dad was really smart. You know, he had a PhD in physics and studied in London and then got a job up in Scotland. And we all moved to Scotland. And I've been up there since I was about one. I was actually born in London, believe it or not. <laughs> And um, so, yeah, we relocated up there. And I think it was hard for my mum because she came over back in the 70s and a lot of her schoolmates stayed in London. No one else moved up to Scotland. So she was starting a whole new life in this place where she'd never seen snow before. Or, you know, it was it was bizarre for her. But um, it was it was an amazing childhood. I, I loved um, growing up there. I think it's made me quite a positive person. I've got quite a positive outlook on my life. Um, and that's down to my mother. She's my rock. She is a role model to me and always taught us as kids to be close. You know, I've got three other siblings, um, a sister and two brothers, and always 
taught us to embrace our culture and to embrace, you know, our dark skin. And it was beautiful. And she never, you know, we never felt different. Um, and we were fortunate in the sense that when we went to primary school and we went to secondary school, a lot of people kind of thought we were the cool kids because there were no other black families that lived in our area. There was ourselves and I think another two families who lived not far away, but we all didn't go to the same primary school. So me and my siblings were the only black kids in our primary school. And then we went to secondary school. I think there was maybe another two on one teacher of colour. But amidst all of that, I mean, I've had a fantastic upbringing there. How did performing find you early on? So this is a funny story. You won't, you won't believe this now because I don't stop talking. But when I was younger, I think it was when I was in nursery, my mum tells me this all the time. She said that she was actually concerned about how quiet I was whenever she dropped me off at nursery. She said, I wouldn't speak to any of the other kids. I kept myself to myself. To the point that she was quite a protective mother. She would stand outside the school gates and spy on me. And she grew concerned because whenever I was home, I was jumping around the walls. I was singing. I was always performing and joking around. And she couldn't understand why I was becoming a completely different person in the school environment. So she decided to put me into um, acting classes and dance classes just to sort of bring me out of my shell. And that's when it all just hit because that's where I felt most comfortable was performing and being on stage and, you know, becoming other people and creating other characters. And that's been it ever since. The other interesting thing is that I was also very athletic. So I love running, I love sports. And there came, it came to head at one point where I had to decide whether I was going to go down the athletic route or go down the performing route. I think it was about 13 or 12 it's when you hit that stage you you love what you do it's a hobby and then you realize oh I could actually make this a career what type of sports were you it was netball actually I was okay. I was really fond of I love netball still today and, and for the listeners quickly how tall are you just so they get an idea I'm of why you would have been good at netball I'm six foot one love that I say on my CV I'm six foot tall but I am six foot one and proud um I was actually asked to sign for the Scottish netball team when I was wow. 13, 14, so I had to make a choice and my heart was always in performing, so went down that route. Well, it's interesting you were talking about um, your heart always being with London, mm-hmm. um, even though, you know, you were sort of born and raised in Glasgow, because it sounds like the big city was calling you from early on. And what I want to touch on is, uh, you know, you talked about performing and, you know, you were, you were 15 years old and you were awarded the Commonwealth Fellowship Award for yes, Musical Theatre which is an amazing award. It's highly sought after. And am I right? That led to a, like a one month trip to... Yeah, it was a one month trip to Australia. Um, wow. I went out there when I was 15 with another colleague of mine from the Knightswood Secondary School. So that was a musical theatre school in Scotland that was designed to specifically help students further their careers later on in life within the performing arts game. And I was shocked when we got picked, you know, we we had to do a sort of performance piece and sing a song and write our own little acting monologue. And we got picked to go over there, all expenses paid, studied at the McDonald College um, of Arts and had the most phenomenal time. Wow. When you look back, you go, what an experience. Um, and really young, actually. To yeah, really go young to go. But I don't know. I think I've always been quite fearless. Yeah, I've, I've seen in some of your interviews that you've talked about your mother really instilling that in you. She has done. Do you think that's, because when I met you, that's something that's really, aside from the fact that you're confident, I don't think that word quite encompasses 
the way you just chuck yourself out into any challenge and just get it done. Um, how do you think it's influenced you, not only growing up, but in your career and all the choices you're making now and the way you stand your ground? Yeah, massively, because the way my mum moved over to this country and has put herself through the most amazing obstacles and gotten through that and raised all of us, you know, um, I think I just move forward in life and if an opportunity comes, I assess it. Some people might think it's quite a scary thing to take on, whereas I just go, well, if it scares me, that's probably quite a good thing. Because I think if you don't do things that scare you, how do you, you know, evolve as a, as a human being? And if it's something that I'm passionate about and it's something that I think will make a change, especially in roles that I play, then I will jump at it with both hands and, and dive right in. Um, I think it shaped me in the way that now, now that I've, I mean, I started a musical theatre, moved on towards street acting, and now myself and my sister have set up our own production company. Now, that wouldn't have come about if myself and Mariah didn't think we were, basically we were bored of the industry we were bored of seeing the same stories the same people portraying the same roles being told from the same perspective and we thought well we're not doing anything about it all we're doing is sitting and complaining you know there's so many stories we want to talk about we both love film we're both very passionate about it why haven't we put our heads together yet why don't we just do it just do it and i think that's the hurdle that a lot of people find hard to tackle is about just getting up and doing it. And I think that ties in with being fearless and saying, why, why not? Why not us? I think um, one of the really great things um, that I think our listeners would, would appreciate is, you know, I, I know I've heard from listening to people on podcasts and, and just interviews about people saying how, you know, they sort of take the, the ball by the horns and they just do it. I'd love to know from your perspective, you started your production company uh, with your sister when you say you, you sort of just did it, what were those first few steps? What is it you did to go, all right, this is what I'm going to do? Was it the writing? Was it the getting in touch with investors? Was it, what, what was the first, what was the initial steps for that? It was just conversations that me and Mariah would have on a regular basis. Like I'd said before, we, we were becoming frustrated with the business and the industry and, and seeing the same stories being told. So... We just spoke about the stories that we wanted to see. We both love period drama. And I remember watching, I can't mind what it was, I think it was Downton Abbey and not seeing a single person of colour in, in that entire series until, I think we've only had two episodes, but there has been a black character portrayed. And we would always see other period films and we'd see the people in the background where, you know, of colour and we were always intrigued by their stories. What would, what would happen if we delved into their worlds? What would we discover? What would we learn? So we started doing a bit of research and Mariah actually came across a story um, in the Mitchell Library in Glasgow. And what she discovered was extraordinary. She discovered these newspaper advertisements. And the newspaper advertisements were about runaway slaves. And if you think about your daily metro today that you get on the tube, I mean, these advertisements were on the back of this. It was as if your cat or dog had gone missing and it was being advertised on the back of these papers. And the further we delved into this, we found more and more advertisements. Basically telling us a story about people of colour who lived in Scotland back in the 18th century, 
who had escaped their, their masters and tried to fight for their freedom. We're both Scottish women and had never heard about this story before. We had never been taught this at school and we thought, well, this is a story waiting to happen. I think this is something that we could write about and talk about and that connects to us and resonates deeply within us. So that's how it came about. We then found out about the Scottish Film Talent Network and applied to them with our story and with our idea. It initially was meant to be a web series. We wanted to make it a web series. Um, and that kind of changed and progressed along the line. They were interested in our piece and we we got involved with them. We got commissioned in the end and we made 1745. But it was just conversations, conversations being frustrated and then going right enough's enough let's try and do something about this let's talk about something else let's show something from a different perspective i definitely want to talk more about uh 1745 we've got some great questions about that what i'd love to just take it back to quickly is uh, you guys wrote it as well right mariah wrote it yes. mariah wrote mm-hmm. it so talk about that process how how do you how does um pen to paper start do you guys uh what's your process what was her process with the writing in terms of um did you know exactly where you wanted to go with it? Was it trial and error? Did, you know, was structure already down? Was writing already something you guys were doing? Maybe we're we're both self taught. Neither of us went to film school, so it actually evolved. So it it started as a supernatural story to begin with, and Mariah had just written just a short, you know, five or six pages. And we just discussed and chatted. That's how we actually work together, is that when the idea comes around, we will talk about the main points that we want to focus on and where we see the protagonist's journey starting, beginning and ending. And we just literally put everything down. It's a, it's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of verbal diarrhea on, on paper. And then we go through it and we discuss it and we refine it and we talk about what works and what doesn't work. A lot of it is just conversation and learning. We we read a few books. We looked at other scripts. We looked at how they laid those out. We we taught ourselves basically along the way. Um, I don't know if there's any such there isn't such a plan as to how we work together and how we write, but it just has evolved with different scripts. So that was the first one, and. Although we were a little bit green at the beginning, we have learned so much now and we just work great together. I guess, yeah, I guess that's just how, how we work. I don't really know. She, she does a lot of the writing and I do a lot of the talking and discussing and, oh, that works, that doesn't work. And the fact that we're both, we've both come from an acting background, we can, you know, talk about the dialogue in a completely different way. You know, we've got a deeper understanding of that. I'd love to um, go back to just the point of frustration, which I think a lot of people and um, I know both myself and Saga have experienced that as well within the industry, mm-hmm. being minorities. Um, but also specifically to you, being um, black and over six foot, as we've talked about several times. Mm-hmm. By the way, guys, I'm five foot and a bit, so <laughs> we looked pretty <laughs> random on stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. How have you found yourself being pigeonholed or what have your struggles been? I, I remember you telling me a story about when you first started off in musical theatre and sort of the limitations that could be forced upon you because of your stature. Yeah, I mean, 
So I started at musical theatre. I will never forget this. So I graduated and started auditioning. And there was a job in the West End that I was vying for. I got down to the finals. I won't mention the name of, of the show, but I was part of a trio and we had to burst out of a poster. Apparently the reason I didn't get the job was because I was too tall to fit in the poster and burst out of it into real life on stage. I thought, wow, that's, that's the first time I've felt that my height has stood against me. So that was a West End production within musical theatre, but it was almost a blessing in disguise because it led me down the regional theatre path where I actually was given more opportunities to play leading roles and not to just be another number on the conveyor belt. And that is where I really grafted and kind of fine-tuned my acting technique and was given the opportunity to play. It was the language in the wardrobe. I played the White Witch and they went against typical casting and wanted to cast a woman of colour who was statuesque and strong and bold. And I've always thought before graduating that my height would stand against me actually in a certain way. But it's actually benefited me in more ways than none. Okay, I'm not going to be cast as the leading love interest in many films or on TV, but if they are looking for someone who is six foot tall, who is, you know, strong and powerful and commanding and has that presence, nine times out of ten I will be right for that part and then we'll end up getting the role. So I think my only... The only thing that I have felt that stood in the way in regards to height is, okay, so if you're not playing the leading love interest, then your roles aren't as complex. They're not as interesting. It's as if, you know, we can't be these interesting, uh, vulnerable women. We're only seen as one thing. So if you're six foot tall, you're not the love, love interest. You're either the lawyer or the doctor or the person facilitating the lead person's role. And... You don't really get to know much about that character. Um, that's, that's been something I have been trying to navigate through my career now. I think, it's, I think the industry is changing and I am getting more opportunities to play more interesting and complex characters. But it has taken a while to get to that point. Has that resulted in sort of you having to take some difficult choices in terms of the roles you say yes or no to? Yes, so I'm trying more than ever now to not take a job because I am the person that is obviously being used to facilitate the lead person's or the protagonist's story. Um, it's, it's a difficult one because work breeds work. I'm in a situation where things are only now starting to take off, which is great. So going forward, I will be a lot more wary about the jobs I say yes to and the jobs I say no to. I'll tell you um, something that I find super interesting is, um, and I know we've touched on this before, um, in the UK, the, the musical theatre route isn't as respected as it is in the States. You know, in the States, if you can be a triple threat. You can do singing, dancing, acting, and it's the biggest strength you could have. Whereas in the UK, I feel like is it fair to say musical theatre is almost looked down upon after acting? Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, we're not paid as well, um, especially if you're within the ensemble of a musical theatre show in the West End. In New York, they pay their ensemble cast a lot of money, uh, whereas here it's 
pretty much equity minimum or or above, just above. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that is. It's 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 been like that for as long as I can remember. It was actually quite a difficult process to transition from musical theatre to street acting because I think there's I don't know there's a sort of stigma that comes with being a performer and being a musical theatre performer and that jazz you, hands jazz hands yeah. they, they can you can only dance and sing you don't really know what it takes to bring out a true acting performance and I think that is really not true I think if we were given the chance and given the opportunity then a lot of casting directors would be able to see that musical theatre people can act just as well. Musical theatre is a very hard skill. The reason it's there is because when a character can no longer sing, uh, speak or talk about their emotions anymore, they have to sing. It, it just evolves to that bigger field. And that's a really tricky and special thing to be able to do. And I think sometimes it's just not seen in that light. It's seen a little bit as being twee and not serious. Do you see your future still in musical theatre or do you think you've transitioned over just acting and producing? I would never, ever say no to going back to doing something in musical theatre. If it was a role that I really believed in and mattered to me, of course I would jump at it with both hands. But um, I've got the... I've always... Out of all three mediums, I always felt stronger and more comfortable doing acting. So it's just, I think it's been a natural progress. Well, it's not that, you know, acting has uh, been too difficult for you because, you know, going back to your short film with 1745, and was it, am I right in saying it was your first short film as a producer? We basically, so it was the first short film that me and my sister created together. Yeah. We didn't produce that short. We helped develop the short. Okay. With SFTN and with Compact Pictures. So that, again, was another situation where me and Mariah were a little bit green at the beginning. We thought, oh, well, it's our first short. It's a cool, it's an interesting, important story. Um, there's someone who wants to help us make it. Yeah, let them, let them take on that responsibility. And then it wasn't until everything had happened and we'd shot it and it did well we kind of thought why didn't we why didn't we produce this as well why haven't we created our own production company so we hadn't created our production company then um it was just at the beginning and yeah we kind of look back now and go why why did we not decide to put our names down and i don't know if that was part of the imposter syndrome that sometimes women and women of color can feel being in male-dominated environments, and you go, oh, they, they know what they're doing. We couldn't, we couldn't possibly help with this or, or know how to do this the way they do. It's, it is our story. It's our baby. We created it. But let's, let's let them deal with that. And that's something that we have now said we will never do again because we are capable. Does the imposter syndrome still exist after a... BAFTA Scotland Best Short Film nomination, a British Independent Film Award. Does, does, does that still exist when stuff like that kicks off with, like you said, you guys were green, mm-hmm. one of your first shorts that you were a big part of. Does it give you a sense of confidence going, you know what, I think we know what we, what we can do here? It's given us a massive boost of confidence. It's been the most incredible learning curve for me and Mario, and we are going to kick imposter syndrome in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> 
and not look back and keep moving forward. So, yeah. And it's being developed into a feature. It's being currently developed into a yeah. feature. I don't know how much you can talk about that, but are you having full ownership and rights over it? We are excited. Um, I can't really say much okay, more okay. than that, but it's it's ongoing and I'm right. excited for the world to see it. And you have um, a second film commissioned as well, right? Which sounds hilarious. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so that's the AV van. And maybe like where the inspiration came from? <laughs> well, the AV van is about two film fanatic sisters who try to reconnect with their deceased estranged father by selling his vintage porn collection. So (laughs) (laughs) it's a complete curveball in comparison to 1745. But I love genre film, so does Mariah. And we want to kind of tell stories from our perspective in a completely different light. We like oddball characters. We like dark comedy. And you rarely see women of colour being represented in that way on film or on TV, I can't really think of any at the yeah, top of my usually head. Usually the sidekick or the best friend. Exactly. And we love the 80s and those kind of films and that vibe. And we just, basically the story is kind of based off some sort of truth in regards to family. But with, a, with another spin on it, we love film, like I said, and there's a lot of elements within it that kind of talks about female empowerment and the kind of films we used to like to watch back in the day that represented oddball, strong, complex female characters. And that is one of the main themes within the story. Family is one of the main, another theme and about dealing with grief and how you deal with it and how people deal with it in different ways. So that's as much as I can say right now, but we're oh, really okay. excited to be commissioned and um, we will be producing that one. And are you going to be in it as well? Is that the plan? I'm going to be in it. Mariah's going and to be in it. writing it? She's writing it. She is directing it as well. How exciting. Yeah. That's great. So proper female, female strong. Um, I just sort of wanted to comment and applaud you on the fact that you're so savvy when it comes to kind of the business side of things and self-promotion, which I know a lot of actors either are great at or like me kind of cringe and are like, oh my God. Um, how do you balance... Uh, being creative because you obviously are so creative and you wouldn't have done everything that you have already done and are going to do if you weren't but you're so focused on the business how does that balance come about where does it come from basically tell me your secrets i don't i don't know if i have any we've got a fantastic um sibling paul who is brilliant at marketing he's a ux designer and he's helped us with all our social media promotional materials and you know, thinking about how to make your platform user friendly and to sort of attract people to your story. I don't think we had any sort of plan about being completely business savvy. I think a lot of people, particularly with 1745, were so amazed by the story that it was unheard of. It's an untold story. It just, it was word. It was word after word. People were talking about it. A lot of people were attracted to our Facebook page. I think we knew we wanted this to be something that a lot of people could see and that it could educate people as well. And that is why we created all the social media platforms. But we didn't put a lot in. I think we put a lot of work into it, but a lot of the attention just came. It just came out of nowhere. You know, you tell one friend, that friend tells someone else, and that breeds, you know. 
And we were very lucky in that sense. And I think because the film did do well along the festival route, that again attracted more followers and, and more people got involved with the story. So I think balancing business and then obviously being creative is, if you want to be creative and you, you want to make a change and you want to, you know, let people see a part of our world in a different way, then you've got to have, yeah, okay, you've got to have a business plan. But for me, social media is is is, is probably one of the best tools that you could use. How much you use it is up to you. We used it, you know, posted something here and there every week when something new happened. And again, it just kept building and growing. When you sort of first started out on this project with your sister, were you aware of sort of the level of activism that you're generating from making things like that? Because it's like oh, Moya Conde, actor, a, producer, that's a, that's activist. Oh, I wouldn't say I'm an activist. No. It kind of, for me, like watching you speak, and I know it's a touchy subject, so we're not going to go super into it, but around the Black Lives Matter um, situations that have happened this year, what really struck me about the things that you did use social media towards was to educate. It wasn't to vent, it wasn't to call out, but you everything you posted up had such a clear message that if you don't understand, ask, or here are places you can visit and read and understand. Um, where does that come from? Because I think education is such a big word that I I've seen you it use. it's so important. I think education is key in tackling racism in this country. I think what's happened over the past few months has really caused people in different countries across the globe to really kind of evaluate the state of their race relations. And... It's just devastating. I was devastated to hear about this going on within the middle of a pandemic. That black men are still being killed in broad daylight. I thought 2020 would be a year that people would sit back and reflect and think about humanity and empathy and trying to be a better person or trying to be a kinder person. So to see this happening in 2020 was, for me, it was it was devastating and I was exhausted and I did make a few posts about the matter and a lot of them have been educational for that reason. Um, I've been part of this petition in Scotland about the reparation of education in Scottish schools where we really need to address race relationships when you're teaching children. I think the first objective is that we need to strip it all down and go back in there and restructure it because you you don't really, well me personally growing up, I didn't have reading materials um, from people of colour. I didn't have a single person of colour teaching me anything in school, which would have helped me out, which would have helped me fit in more. I think there is obviously advantages to teaching children about the history context, but it has to go deeper than that. We have to actually teach children and teach ourselves about the experiences of minority groups. Teachers also need to diversify their workplace and also learn how to sort of talk about racial awareness. They need to go on racial awareness courses so that they're not afraid to talk about race within a classroom or to deal with racism within classrooms. I think there should be black excellence within the curriculum, that should be taught. I think it really starts from there because if you're only teaching children 
certain stories and certain things in our history from one perspective, that is so damaging because they're going to leave school. They're going to leave secondary school and see the world from one, from one lens. They're not going to understand about other cultures and why we do things certain, in certain different ways or they're just not going to be able to understand the other and that the other isn't inferior, that we're all equal. And we should all learn to love each other as equals in this world, regardless of race, colour, sex, religion. And I'm really passionate about it. I've spoken about it before. Yeah, but, um, you've done some great talks, especially concerning the industry as well. And I really want to delve into that because some of the stuff that I've heard you say is it's just not spoken aloud enough. Or if it is, it's just not heard enough. And I don't know how much louder or clearer people can say it. But um, I really did want to go into, there was something that really stuck out to me when I was listening to um, some of your talks where you, you talk about the industry needs to go and similarly to what you're talking about schools, but a retraining mm-hmm. um, and the fact that uh, racism or, or diversity, it kind of goes beyond just the casting process. I'd love to hear you talk about that because, again, I think there's not enough light shone on those aspects. I mean, it starts from the top. I think for people of colour to be represented in a positive light and in an honest light within TV and film, then you need to reflect the society that we live in today. And that all stems from people at the top, like producers and financiers and production companies, hiring outside of their circle. So the problem doesn't even just start with casting and not casting people of colour in leading roles. It starts from, you know, production companies who are all white or it starts with casting HODs that are all white. We need to we need to mix it up because that then will stem work for other people of colour. It means they need to employ more black writers, they need to employ black directors, um, not just black, I mean people of colour in general, so that our stories can be shared and can be told. They have the power to do that. It's happening. You know, there are some amazing people like Steve McQueen and Amasanti, Eva DuVernay. They're all amazing. And they are now, they've always have done. And they've always championed people of colour. And they've always kind of shared their stories from a forefront view. I think the industry's changing, but more could be done. And that, again, all stems from people at the top being able to make those decisions. You know, not saying that having an all black cast or an integrated cast is a risk. Audiences want to see that now. We want to see a change. We want to see something fresh. And yeah, it, 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 it will happen slowly. It is happening, but a lot more needs to be done. I know um, some of the, the big names that you mentioned are, are trying to make some differences and doing that in, in the way that they can. And I know especially Michael B. Jordan has done that in terms of every production he now works on with his production company i think there has to be um a certain amount of representation yeah because i've I've actually never worked with any hod's on a tv or film set who are of color i'm actually really saddened to say that i think i i don't think i have either of you amrita not no no i haven't wow um there you go apart from directors is it something you're mindful of, again, with your own production company? Yeah, 100%. We yeah. really want to tell diversified stories. And with our current project, our short film, The AV Van, 
we want to make sure that we have HODs and you know makeup designers and hair designers and production designers coming from different backgrounds. We think that's really important. It's something I've always championed and it's something that I'm going to make sure will always happen within every production that I produce. Have you seen much of it around in terms of, um, as a producer, researching people um, like that? Is it out there as much? Is it just that they're not being hired? Do you think people need to allow themselves to to go into those fields? Maybe they previously haven't felt confident because, oh, well, I'm not going to get the work anyway. I think people are just lazy. And when you're lazy and you need to get things done quickly and you need a fast turnaround, you're always going to hire within that circle. I think there are a lot of diverse HODs within, as in DOPs and makeup designers and hair designers who haven't been able to find a way into the film or TV industry because, like I said, it's so cliquey and it's, there, there is your group and their group and they're seen as the outsiders. And I think if people make an effort to find other talent, they will find diamonds. There are so many diamonds out there that they can hire I mean, it starts with training in the sense of uh, internships and allowing people from diverse backgrounds to, you know, make their own films and have experiences on film sets. It takes more effort. It will take more effort. If you're used to doing something the same way year after year, generation after generation, it's going to take a big shaking. And okay, the scales will tip off balance for now, but soon it will become normalised, which is the way it should be. Uh, I know so many people of colour who haven't managed to penetrate the film and TV industry just because people don't want to look for them. They're there and then they don't have an in, you know. So it's hard to take a risk if there's no opportunities mm -hmm. available, isn't it? Exactly. Um, I think I remember from one of your um, interviews, you mentioned that you'd heard of they couldn't find a stunt double of the correct colouring and therefore they basically blackfaced <laughs> yes. a stunt. Yeah, what did you say? They blackfaced a stunt. A stunt double. Well, yeah. I was working on a film production. Wow. And my character had to do quite a few stunts here and there. And they had actually initially hired a mixed race girl to be my stunt double, but she was too short. They actually sprayed her darker as well. While I was in the makeup room with her, sitting next to her, they spray painted her a darker shade of brown. Uh, and when that didn't work, because we didn't look alike on screen, they actually hired a man. Um, so it was, it was a six foot tall man, white man, that they brought in. Um, they dressed him in a wig and spray painted him black as well so that was upsetting and I was younger at the time and it, it just makes you feel like an alien you feel alienated and I just feel that that should never have happened when I look back now that should never have happened but it's happened to many others in the industry do you think if that happened now do you think you'd feel confident enough to speak up yeah. This is the thing. I, in the past, I've, I've not said anything. I've, let, I've kept my mouth shut because you don't want to be portrayed as the, you know, angry. Difficult. Difficult black woman who should be fortunate that she's got the job. But 
as I'm getting older, I just don't have time for it anymore. And if I see something like that happening, then I have to say something. I've said it even a few years ago, there was a job I worked on and it turned out the other woman that was on the job was told to come in and they were doing her makeup every day. The makeup team were doing her makeup every day. When I went for my makeup test, I was told that I should come in with my makeup the way it's done because they wouldn't have time to touch me up throughout the day. So I thought, well, this is what's going on in this set. This is fine. I'll I'll arrive on set for my first day shooting and I'll have my makeup done. So I'll, all they'll do is touch it up. But as it transpired, as the shoot went on, my other female colleague, white colleague, was in far more scenes than me playing far more different characters. And she came in with a fresh face every day and they would apply the makeup for her every day. So at the end of that shoot, I kind of thought to myself, so why is it that I've been told to come in with my makeup done and I'm in two scenes? She's been told to come in and they would do her makeup for her. So I had to say something about that. My agent got in touch with the production company and highlighted the issue. And they were very apologetic. But why, why was that happening? Why did they think that was okay? That what was their reason? So they apologised, but did they, they apologised um, and said the makeup designer had been through a family kind of uh, bereavement and she wasn't quite, you know, on it, I suppose. But you're there to do your job. If you can happily do the makeup for another woman who's in far more scenes than I am and having to put different wigs on and different costumes on, then I'm sure you're more than fine to do that for me. Well, I'd really like to um, touch on this aspect of speaking out, um, you know, in line of all, obviously of all the movements like Time's Up and um, Me Too and, and BLM, but also just as a woman within the industry. And I think meeting you was one of the first times I'd met somebody that was as adamant as I am about I would rather be difficult and respected than be easy and taken for a ride. Has that taken... A while to harness and how do you you know what I guess for the people listening and especially the generation coming up now of performers actors or anybody in the industry or anyone in, anywhere that needs to be given a voice what would you say I mean how do you get people to that stage without fear it's been a long process for me I mean you come into this world you I've already got two burdens against me being a woman and being a black woman which is hard to navigate in itself. And I think my mother has been so vital in my process. She's paved the way for a lot of how I think and how I kind of interact with people on a daily basis. And she's always, always been an advocate for me to speak my truth and to stand up for myself. You have to be very sensitive within this industry. You can't mouth off like that. People are worried that if they speak up that they will not work again. Um, I wasn't asked back to work on that job that I, was, that I mentioned to you with the makeup scenario. I just think if I could go back and tell my younger self anything or give myself any advice was, would be just to speak up. Speak up. Be articulate about it, be intelligent about it. You can't get emotional about it, unfortunately, being a woman of colour, but you have to speak your truth. If you can't speak your truth, how do you move forward in life? If you can't address 
things that are wrong and be confident doing that, then you're not being true to yourself. And I just think it takes a lot of guts to do it, though. It does take a lot of guts and you have to be sure that what you believe in is right to you anyway. And I would just say, speak your truth. No one is stopping you. But a lot of people can can listen. They can take that on board, but it's hard. It's hard to actually execute. Um, going forward, I will always speak my truth now. There's been too many incidents that have happened in the past for me not to. Because you have to live with that every day as well, moving forward. I think um, having sat, here with you for the best part of an hour you know and it's it's nothing i didn't already know in terms of you know your confidence your positive outlook on life and you know just your ability to just just do things and just get up and go and i think that's reflected in some of the work that you've done you know you've worked at the shakespeare globe the the sheffield crucible west yorkshire playhouse birmingham rep uh the national theater of scotland you've been on tv shows such as the cry vera porridge taggart lip service and most recently you're on guilt which did phenomenally season well two coming soon i think season two is on the works i'd uh, i'd love to know who um i know you mentioned your mum is a big part of it but i'd love to know who are some of your um inspirations well i absolutely adore the queen viola davis she she reminds me a little bit of myself in the sense that she came into her career later on in life. She started out, she trained at Juilliard, um, had to navigate her life through that school and obviously being a person of colour back then. She was never put in the forefront or she was a bit of an underdog like myself throughout the sort of drama school training and went on and did theatre, did a, did a fantastic job on Broadway and has now found herself... Uh, being this incredible actress within film and TV now and is now producing and has her own production company. And she has said something that sticks with me so much. And she says, the only thing separating women of colour from anyone else is opportunity. And she said so many things I believe in, in the sense that she, again, wants to shape how black women are perceived. And film and TV is such an influential medium for that. But she again wants to tell diverse stories um, from a fresh perspective. And she has been protesting her whole life for who she is as a woman. And some of the work, her work is incredible. I literally watch her films and study her. And I go, Mom, I want to I be my version of Viola Davis. I shouldn't want to be anyone. Right? I should want to be myself. But she is an absolute inspiration to me. And I'm so proud of everything that woman has achieved. I mean, you saw the Vanity Fair issue recently mm-hmm. where, you know, Damon Kalesi was the first black photographer to shoot for Vanity Fair and Viola was his, you know, was his model. And it was just, for me, that was history, history in the making. And we need to see more of that. And I think Viola, again, always speaks her truth. She's not afraid to speak her truth. and speak up when she knows something is wrong. When you say you, you study her, what, what do you look out for? Just her acting performances are so realistic and honest. She really takes home what her protagonist or her, her character is striving for and what's holding them back. You really see that come through in her performances. She chooses roles as well 
that show complexities within women in our community. She shows that they can be sexy. She, so, she shows that they can be still strong and have fantastic jobs, but they're interesting. They're funny. They're, there are so many layers to a lot of the characters that she decides to play. She's, so, she's paved the way for women like me. Without Violas and the Taragis and the Gabrielle Unions and the, you know, Kerry Washington's Halberries, I wouldn't even be able to do what I'm doing right now. And oh, she's just she's just an inspiration. And she's raw. She's raw. You can feel all everything she's been through in life, the pain and the success and the trauma. She puts everything into all of her performances and she never holds back. So if I could be half of that one day, I'd be a very, very happy woman. How would you describe yourself as as an actor? You know, you, you look at someone like Viola and, you know, you you model yourself off some of the things that she does. What's what's Moyo's process? How do you break down a script? How do you approach a role? Are you quite uh, methodical? Are you sort of instinctual? A bit of everything? A bit a bit of everything. I I can read a script over and over again. And it doesn't speak to me. If I'm gripped within the first 10 pages, that's when I know, right, okay, I want to be involved with this story. There's something interesting here. Now, when it comes to whatever character I'm going to play, I have to feel that they've gone on some sort of journey. There's got to have been a starting point where they've started and they've finished up either not changing or learning something about themselves. And a lot of the time, you don't find characters like that within scripts, especially when it comes to casting women of colour at the moment, I find on TV. Um, and how I'll tackle that character's journey is, again, I will look at what that person really is striving for, but what's holding them back from getting what they want. Now, if that is ringing true, you might not find it straight away in a script. That's when you know you've got a good script on your hands as well, that you really have to pick it apart and know by what other people say about your character and what you say about other people and things that kind of evolve within the script, then you'll know where the heart is because I, I tend to find that a lot of the parts that I might go up for don't really have that journey. You know, they've started to now. I can see a real change with some of the characters I've played recently. But if that person can show complexities and show range and show as a window into their lives. We don't leave watching, you know, a film on the screen and leave thinking about, oh, well, that was really interesting. That, that, that story made me think about this, this and this. I don't, it doesn't help that people break down a character. If you can leave the cinema feeling that you've been moved, truly moved, and that person has made you think and feel about them in a certain way, then that's when you know the script has done its job within that character but I find that even it's like film films that deal with okay let's for, say for instance slavery that are sometimes done to sort of appeal to the white palette and I find that it doesn't some of them don't resonate with me in that way because when you leave the cinema you're just thinking about you're not thinking about what has happened to the person you're thinking about the historical context. You're thinking about, oh, that was really sad. How come that happened to them? But you're not really connecting with that individual's journey. And that's why we really want to make 1745 uh, 
a, a celebration of these two women who have personalities and have complexities and are interesting and have to navigate that in order to find their freedom. I've, we watch a lot of films about slavery where the lead protagonists within that story don't really have personalities or they don't really show the full range of emotions that they would have had back then. Um, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. But um, for me, that is a kind of thing that I want to be playing in future. That's how I want to feel when I read a script, when a character is presented to me. And at the moment, it's there, but it's also, it's not, it's not there in the way that it should be. And Viola, in that sense, is fortunate that she has that opportunity to play those roles but again they're far and few between and she's commented on this many times before so yeah I just I just hope that we can be portrayed in an honest light and I think that again will only really start to take off when we again the producers and the financiers will produce those kind of films that they, they will hire the people of colour who are writers and directors and want to show that side of our community. So, yeah, I went off on a tangent there. But it's <laughs> well, all connected. No, it is. And I know? think, you know, it all comes down to perspective, which mm-hmm. is such a big thing you talked about. But also the, the more these opportunities are created, the more these types of works are made, the more the risk factor will be gone. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, time and time again, people of colour have shown our stories exist and people resonate Mm -hmm. and they resonate within a huge broad spectrum of an audience we are um, running out of time Uh, quickly before we go on to our final question um, what's the dream the dream is to take over the industry (laughs) Um, the dream is to just keep telling stories again from a fresh perspective in a big scale like we've only just begun being Mariah, we have so much more to to offer, and I would love to be able to direct with her as well in future. Uh, we'd be the Candy Sisters, and just yeah, be able to just entertain people and allow people to sort of leave the cinema and kind of feel that just feel you know lifted and to celebrate black women and people of colour and just to show different stories and engage people in a different way that they've never been engaged before. So I think just to keep dreaming big that we can keep telling our stories and I think that's one of the most refreshing things I've heard is I love when people just own their ambition and just go, yeah, I do. I want to hit it big. And you will. If anyone can do it, you can. I have no doubt the Akande sisters has got a ring to it. It's it got has, a yeah. ring behind it. I, I can definitely I'd see it going it. Where, it's, where it needs to go. <laughs> um, our, our last question of, uh, of the day. Um, so what is your favourite part of uh, the biz? Is it, and I guess this is more from the acting perspective, but is it getting the call to say you got the gig? Is it the process doing it? Is it the end result, the actual performance? Or seeing yourself back on screen? I love the process of doing it because that's when I feel at my most creative and at best. And I just love the kind of nature of just working with different people and meeting 
all types of different people from different backgrounds. One of the reasons I love acting is that on every job that you work on, everyone has different points of view and everyone shares different perspectives. And you can all just sit in a room and learn from each other and talk to each other about everything and anything. And I think that's something I'm actually missing at the moment, being in isolation, is that you miss that connection with other people. You know, they're all different ages and you know, different genders and come from different backgrounds and making something with other people, being in that process, being being on set or being on stage, there's there's nothing that beats that buzz of being creative. Um it's it's like a meditation for me, being creative. Be like, yeah, done done <laughs> that today. Leaves you feeling kinda happy and yeah, hopeful about the future. It's obviously nice to earn some money while you're doing it. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. I'm sure there's great things on the horizon and I can't wait to, to see it and, and, uh, and see where you go. Thanks, guys. Um, but thank you for coming on to the no, Raw 90 Exception great. podcast. It's, it's been, been fantastic.